Thanks for finding us. This is a message recorded at Fairfax Assembly in Bakersfield, California. You can find out more at fairfaxassembly.com. Had a conversation, and I apologize, Monica, it wasn't you, with a barber this last week. I wasn't in your part of town. That's why I didn't go by your shop. But I stopped in at another shop and had a conversation with the barber. Anytime I've gone in this shop, it's uh, for the last three years, it's been the same conversation. This time, Monday, Tuesday, it was a little different. Uh, we always have a conversation because I accidentally let slip one time that when I'm driving along, if I'm eating a banana or an apple, I don't consider it littering to throw the banana peel out the window. The barber insists, no, that is littering. And so every time I go in this shop, they hit me with the same thing. There's the litter bug. I'm not a litter bug. It's biodegradable. Animals will eat it. It's not litter. Anyway, you try having that from three different chairs and the customers. And so if you've got an opinion on that, by the way, don't challenge me because I'm really sharp on this. I've, I've fended off a lot of people with this. Anyway, the conversation wasn't about my, my litter bug habits. Uh, but the barber, I forgot what we were talking about. The barber said something like, you know, I think when this life is over, this is it. When you're gone, you're gone. What do you think? Well, that's not what I think, obviously. I didn't want to tip my hand because I've gone in this shop a few times, never told them I'm a pastor, because I was afraid if I say, well, you know, I'm a pastor and here's what I think, it would just shut down the conversation. So I didn't tip my hand, but I said, and I, and I didn't want to come across as a, a Bible know-it-all. And so I said, you know what I think? I said, there are so many things about life that is so good. And, and I was telling the other people in the shop, the other barbers and the customers, I said, to me, life is so good. It's good to be alive. But there's so many good things in life, family and friends and things that I've enjoyed and good music and good food and, and just so many good experiences. I said, I've, I've just had so much good happen in my life. And, and, I, and I said, and, and, and I've got the feeling that we've all got the capacity to enjoy even more joy and happiness than we've ever experienced. We have a sense inside that, wow, this has been great, but there's even more that I could enjoy. I said, I am so convinced that life is good that I just can't believe that something this good, life, ends, lights out, that's it, and it turns out to be a big nothing. That's what I think. Now, I'm probably informed by that because this particular time of my life is very good. This is a good time for me. My girls are grown. They haven't given us too much grief. Cost us a lot of money, but not much grief. But they're fun and they're funny and now grandkids and good friends and good church and just so many good things. It's a good time for me. Jesus experienced 
many good things too when he was on this earth. A lot of good. He experienced much happiness. You can read about the times he was happy. And he loved being with people. He especially loved being with children. It was the joy of his life. He would put them on his lap and hug them close. He liked being with sinners because to him, sinners were more interesting than perfect people wrapped up in their religion. And you read stories about him. He ate and laughed and joked and he made fun of his disciples. He gave them nicknames. And that was part of his sense of humor. He enjoyed life. But he had his low points too. And the lowest of the low points was probably in the garden the night he was arrested. Before he was arrested, he would be in that garden where he would be so distressed as he's praying. He's trying to get strength. And so he goes there to pray, and he, and he takes along his followers, his apprentices, his disciples, because he wants them to be included in this experience too. He wants them to see what this kind of prayer is like too. And so he brings them along, 11 of them now. And at this lowest point, he's there in the garden, and he's praying, but he's agonizing, really. The book of Hebrews, looking at that hour, says that this is when he cried out with loud cries and much pain, to the point that the pores of his skin would open up and blood would seep out. He was in that much anguish. It, it was the worst of the bad times for him, the worst. And that's where we find another one of those questions that Jesus asks and we should answer. You may want to turn to the story. It's Mark 14. You'll find it in Mark 14, beginning about verse 32, if you're looking it up. Now, I've got to tell you in advance, before we launch into this, that there are some personal and very unflattering details about Simon Peter in this story. And let me tell you why that is. In an effort to be as transparent as possible, those details about Simon Peter, none of them flattering, are in there. Mark is the oldest gospel. There are four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Mark is the oldest. It was the first to be written. It's the oldest gospel. And it came from the heart and the brain of Simon Peter because John Mark, we know him as Mark, was a close associate, a junior associate, of Simon Peter's. And as Simon Peter got a little bit older, he began to dictate to John Mark the things he remembered about this remarkable time of discipleship being apprenticed by Jesus Christ. And that's what we call the gospel of Mark. So Simon Peter really is the genius, the brains behind this gospel. And he is very unvarnished in supplying some unflattering details about himself. He's brutally honest. Now, the time is night, and nighttime always makes everything worse. You can hear a sound in the daytime, and it doesn't bother you at all. Hear the same sound in the dead of night, and you get up to check on things. It's nighttime. And the setting is Gethsemane. It's a, it's a working garden. It's an orchard of olive trees. In fact, the name Gethsemane means olive press. 
And in this place, Gethsemane, Jesus will be almost pressed to death. Now, you, you could make a case, you could argue the case, that the torment that he will experience in Gethsemane as he's kneeling there in prayer, literally on his face to the ground in prayer, you could make a case that the torment that he will suffer there, the mental and emotional and spiritual torment that he will go through for those hours, that it is worse than the physical torment that he will experience on the cross to come. He takes the 11 with him. Judas has gone to do his ugly deed. So he takes the 11 with him to witness this time of prayer. And he separates out three of them, Simon Peter, James, and John, two brothers. That's his inner circle. And he says, I want you to come a little bit closer to where I'm going to pray, to these three, James, John, Simon, Peter. That's his inner circle, and it wasn't unusual for him to pull these three out of the larger group to show them things and tell them things. It wasn't unusual. But maybe one of the reasons Simon Peter gets in this inner circle at this time is because he had just led a protest of faithfulness. When Jesus said he was going to die alone, Simon Peter said, No, no, I will die with you. No matter what anybody else does, no matter what these other 11 fellows do, I am going to die with you. And the others chimed in and said the same thing. So he had led that chorus of protest and faithfulness to death. And so he gets invited to come in and see how Jesus is going to agonize and pray. James and John earlier were very emphatic in their willingness to drink the same bitter cup that Jesus would drink. Oh yeah, we can drink that too, Jesus. And Jesus said, we'll see. And so he invites them to see what that bitter cup's all about. Maybe, maybe he invites them for another reason. Maybe he invites them to come along and pray with him because they had witnessed the amazing event called the transfiguration. They, they had been privileged to witness it when Jesus glowed like the noonday sun and he was visited with Old Testament worthies and talked with them and they were overcome by that experience. These three had been the one to witness that on the mountaintop. So maybe that's why they got chosen. Maybe because he assumed that they would now rise to the occasion because they had seen the transfiguration, that now on this day, in this ugly hour, they would rise to the occasion and they would now share in the terrible burden of difficult prayer because he invites them to come along and pray with him. But it's now the time when the Father will lay on Christ the iniquity, the sin, the ugliness of all of us. It's that moment that Isaiah had seen coming and he will now become the sin offering so we can go free. And Christ will have the iniquity of us all laid on him so we can be free. And Jesus needs those three to be there because the Bible says in the King James, verse 33, that at this point, even before he falls to the ground to pray, that already he is, he is sore amazed. That means he's distressed and he's disturbed in his spirit. He is troubled and what's happening is there is a shuddering horror that is shooting through him and gripping him. 
And he is, at this point, as he walks into that prayer garden, he is completely dismayed. He is completely demoralized. He is deeply depressed, and everything is very heavy for him. And so it says that he's feeling the weight of all sin of all time, and it's falling on his pure soul. He's never experienced sin before. How nasty it is, how disgusting it is, how corrosive it is, how hurtful it is, how destructive it is. He's beginning to sense that now. And in the 35th verse, it says he fell to the ground. Now, he doesn't go to the ground as a usual prayer posture. You can stand, you can raise your hands, you can kneel, you can lay on the ground and pray. And Jesus was familiar with all of those prayer postures. But it's not the usual prayer posture here. But what we're seeing is the effect of an overbearing anguish in his soul that drives him to the ground. He collapses on the ground. And there he begins his prayer by saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup of bitterness pass from me. And when he says, if it is possible, that tells you that he is so stunned in his humanity. He is God, but he is man. He's fully human. And in his humanity, when he says, if it is possible, that tells you that he is so stunned by the awful reality of sin that he wonders out loud to God, is there any way to be true to my mission without experiencing the shocking essence of hell? And then he prays that this hour, the hour, might pass. He's not talking about a literal 60 minutes there. But the hour he's talking about encompasses the arrest that will come and the trial, seven of them. All of them kangaroo courts. And the humiliation and the beating and the blood loss and the death. That's the hour he's saying, can it pass? Earlier on, several times his enemies had wanted to kill him, but they couldn't because it wasn't his hour. And in his high priestly prayer, he will, he will say that the hour has now come. The Father could have taken that cup away. But if he'd done that, the entire human race would have been forever damned in hell. You too. Now when you're looking at this picture of Jesus on the ground, carrying the full load of sin, don't, don't, don't make the mistake when you hear him say, if it is possible. Don't, don't make the mistake of thinking that Jesus is praying to be delivered from death. He wasn't. He knows he will die. He knows he has come to earth to die, to be a sacrifice. He knows that. But he was facing not just death, but he was facing the complete, the full load of judgment for all sin, of all time, all people, everything has got to be paid for. And he's also facing the wrath of God on that sin. God is angry about that sin. 
And in doing that, in becoming sin for us, he will be separated for the first time ever from the love of the Father. That's what he can't bear. But he ends up saying, but Father, not what I will, but your will be done. Total submission to the plan. Now on a hill in that same series of hills where one of them will be the hill that he dies on, the cross. In that same series of hills, and maybe some people think that very hill, centuries before Father Abraham had laid his son, had bound his son Isaac, his son of promise, his only son of promise, In obedience to the voice of God, he had bound his son. The rabbis call this incident the Akita, the binding of Isaac, because when he bound his son with that rope, the die was cast and the lever was thrown, and there was no turning back. He was going to murder his son as a sacrifice. In obedience to God. And maybe on that very same cross hill, centuries before, Abraham had prepared to sacrifice Isaac as he laid there on that makeshift altar tied up. Father Abraham had lifted the dagger up and he aimed it at his son's heart. He was going to take his son's life. And as he begins the fatal descent, an angel will grab his arm and stop him. And the son will be spared. But on this day, There is nobody to stop the arm of the Father, and the Son will die. Jesus knows all of that, and he submits to all of that. As he's laying there on the ground, somehow strength comes back to him. Seems like he's got a little more inner strength and a little more physical strength now. Luke says that it's because an angel came to strengthen him somehow. And he rises with this new strength. And he goes to check on those three that should be praying with him. James and John and Simon Peter. He goes to check on them because they're in grief too. They they know where this is headed. He's been very clear. And so they're praying too, he thinks, because they're sharing his grief too, he thinks, but he finds them all three asleep. And then there's our question for today. Jesus singles one of them out and he says, Simon, are you asleep? He doesn't call him Petros, Peter. Not this time. That was Jesus' favorite name for Simon. His given name was Simon, son of Jonah, Simon Bar-Jonah. But Jesus called him Petros, Peter, As a joke, as a nickname, it means rock. And it's not Petros this time. It's just Simon. Because he's hardly a stone at this point. He's not much of a rock. You know, as I look at that story and that question in 1437, Simon, are you asleep? It makes me realize that all around us today, There are a lot of people that are lulling themselves to sleep. 
And by sleep, I mean unconcern, apathy for the things of God. Don't care about the things of God. Not interested, really. There are even people that would say, I am a professing Christian who are asleep. They're unconcerned. They're apathetic about the things of God. Now, the unconcern, the sleep that takes people today usually shows up by being more concerned about other things than the things of God. That's how it usually shows up today. I'm more concerned about other stuff than I am about the things of God. That's how unconcerned sleep shows up today. I think there are very few people that consciously dismiss God. I I don't know of too many people that have said, no, I don't want anything to do with God. I don't know too many like that. And there are very few that consciously dismiss God, but other things are allowed to move into first place. That's how it happens. Work, money, taking care of my health, free time, all good things, but they're allowed to become first place when Christ should be first place. Sports, taking care of my place, home repairs, television. All of those are things that in their place are fine. But it is a high crime and more than a misdemeanor for any disciple, any apprentice, any follower of Jesus, since he has already made it very clear, seek first the kingdom of God. Only one thing can be first. It will either be my money or my work or my fun time or Jesus. Only one thing can be first, and he says, seek first the kingdom of God, that place where the king is most interested and in charge, the kingdom. So we're talking unconcern when we say sleeping. Now here's the deal with sleeping. Simon, are you asleep? Here's the deal with sleeping. When I'm sleeping, I can't hear Jesus. They couldn't hear him. They were asleep. They were in another world. They were in dreamland. They couldn't hear him. They couldn't hear him praying. And the reason he had brought them to that place and put them so close to where he was praying so they would hear him praying. Where else are they going to learn how to pray? That's how you learn how to pray, by the way, is pray with somebody who knows how to pray. That's how you learn how to pray. Where are they going to learn this kind of prayer? Nowhere else. He's, he's wanting to give them a graduate-level course in prayer. But they skip it and they sleep instead. They had asked him before. They were interested. Lord, teach us to pray. And he's doing that here. You know, since the days of Father Abraham, at least and probably before, God has been speaking. He's been talking. He's got something to say. The thing that makes Abraham a remarkable character is not his sterling personality, because he was a bonehead sometimes. But the thing that makes him remarkable, and we call him the father of the faithful, is because when God talked, he talked back. So God has been speaking at least since the days of Abraham. The book of Hebrews says that in our day, he has spoken through his son. He's interested in conversation with us, dialogue. Jesus has something to say to you, just to you. But if we're sleeping, we will miss it. So when I'm sleeping, I can't hear Jesus. When I'm sleeping, I'm not watching. The mob will end up 
ending this prayer meeting. They will come with their sharp sticks and their weapons. They will come with their torches and their chains and their ropes. They will come with all of their anger and their rage. And they will arrest Jesus. And that's how this meeting will end, with the mob. And Jesus has specifically said to the three, I want you to pray with me and watch with me. Keep a sharp eye out. I want a heads up when they get here. He didn't get what he wanted. They were on him suddenly. He would have preferred that it would have happened differently. That's why he said, watch with me. But they didn't. And he didn't get what he needed because the disciples were sleeping, you see. If I'm sleeping, I'm not watching. See, he's... He's not only has things to say to you, and if you're sleeping, you can't hear them, but he has things to show you, and if you're sleeping, you can't see them, you see. He needs you to do some things that you cannot do if you're asleep. He will say in another place, pray the Lord of the harvest, that he will send laborers into his harvest. Why? Because the harvest is great, but the laborers are few. And what he's saying is that God is limited by our level of cooperation. And if I'm asleep, I'm not cooperating. I'm not watching. And he needs us to watch. He's got things he needs us to do. But if you sleep, you will miss it. You'll miss it. There's another thing. When I'm sleeping, sleeping is unconcerned. When I'm sleeping, I'm not praying. That was the great work of that hour. He brought them to that place of the olive press where he would be pressed because he wanted them to share in his burden of prayer. But they went to sleep. And when I'm asleep, I'm not praying. And that was the work of the hour. When I put work first, when I put fun first, when I put anything first ahead of him, then I'm not in touch with him at that point. And this, by the way, is how you end up going several days and wake up suddenly and realize, I have not talked to the Lord in three days. Because other things got put first. When other things are first, when I'm sleeping, I'm not praying. As we wrap this up, I want you to turn to something the great Apostle Paul had to say in the book of Romans. 13th chapter is where you want to go. And it talks, strangely enough, about our topic, sleep. Simon, why are you asleep? And he addresses the issue here, Romans 13, 11. He talks about some things we need to wake up to. Here's the way he says it. Do this, knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. It is already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. In other words, you've overslept. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believe when we first believed. Now, there's some things we need to wake up to. According to the, to the apostle, one of the things we need to wake up to is the clock. The clock. Because he says, knowing the time. Do we know the time? The, the word that's used for time there, it means a particular time. Know your particular time. There's another version that says, knowing the strategic season. We live in a strategic season. 
There's another one that says, knowing the critical period in which we are living. We are living in a critical period in human history, you and I. Another one says, knowing the coming great crisis. So the question is, do we know what time it is? Are we watching the clock? There are many people, even believers, that cannot tell time. They have no idea, no appreciation for the time that we are living in. Jesus said, you can read the signs in the sky. It's one of the things that we teach the boys, camping skills and all of that. We teach them a little jingle. Red sky in the morning, sailor take warning. In other words, if you see a red sky and the sun's coming up, there's likely to be rain that day, bad weather. But the rest of the jingle says, red sky at night, Sailor's delight. Jesus was talking about that very same thing. If it's a red sky at sunset, it's going to be a nice day tomorrow. And Jesus was talking about that very thing. He said, you can read the signs in the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. You know, things are not always going to be like they are today. I've got a feeling that in some years, maybe within the lifetime of some people here, what we're doing right now will not be allowed. Things are not going to stay the same. Things never stay the same. We think things move slowly. They really move very fast. All you've got to do is look back to when you were a kid. There's not one person in this room when you were a kid that imagined that one day you would have a little phone next to your ear that would go everywhere, and it would get your mail. And it would tell you anything you wanted to know. You could ask it any question. And it would take really good pictures. <laughs> Never imagined. Things changed that fast. Things were always changing. You see, everything is not going to be like this forever. We live in what the Apostle Paul called difficult times, perilous times. He saw these times coming. And he details it. And when you read what he saw, it fits exactly our day. In every single detail. We live in perilous times. We live in difficult times. We live in times that a great Greek historian called a time like no other. There's never been a day like this. Not quite like this. And so one of the things we need to make wake up to is the clock. We need to know the time. The other thing we need to wake up to, according to the great apostle in Romans 13, is the choice. The choice we have is sleep or not sleep. Be concerned about the things of God first and foremost or not. Be concerned about something else. And he says it this way, it's already the hour. It's past time to awaken from sleep. It's already time to awake from sleep. You've overslept. A few times I've visited a place called Assumption Abbey. It is a monastery of Trappist monks. Don't worry, I don't go there because I'm in danger of converting Catholicism. I tried that already. But I go there because it's quiet. Quiet. And I mean quiet. And you can actually think. And you can actually pray. <laughs> 
And so I've gone a few times and spent a few days at a time at Assumption Abbey. I've noticed, especially when I've gone there during wintertime, that the place is cold. I mean, the chapel where they have their services and pray, cold. The dining area where you eat, cold. Even the room where you stay, you can't get it warm. And one day I, I asked, you can't talk to all of the fellows. You're not allowed to because they don't talk a lot. It's part of their vocation. But there's one guy that you're allowed to talk to called the guest master. And I asked the guest master one time, I said, why do you fellows keep it so cold? And he said, simple. He said, if we cranked up the heat when we're supposed to be praying or studying or working or whatever, we might get drowsy. So we keep it chilly on purpose because it sharpens our mind. That's what we think. Well, my takeaway from that is whatever I've got to do to stay concerned, whatever I've got to do to stay awake to the things of God, whatever I've got to do in order to put Him first ahead of everything else and stay concerned, I need to do that. I need to do that. There's a proverb that says, a little closing of the eye, a little folding of the hands in sleep, and destruction will come on you like an armed man, and difficulty like a robber. You see, the choice is always ours. I can be concerned, or I can be unconcerned, as is the choice to sleep or wake up. So some of the things we need to wake up to are the clock, the choice, finally, the consummation. Look at what he says. Look at what he says. Now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. In other words, my final redemption, what God is going to finally do in this world and with me, is getting closer than the day I first believed, than the day I first approached Christ and allowed Him to begin to live in me. It's closer now. It's closer now. See, he's, he's talking about salvation not as a trip to an altar or a prayer that we pray, a sinner's prayer. He's not talking about individual salvation, but he's talking about God finally getting His way. God finally getting what He really wants. Why he really made all this and went to all this trouble to create a universe where people could live. And then why he went to the trouble of sending messenger after messenger, of developing his word, of developing his church, of sending Christ, of sending the Holy Spirit, of doing all that he's done and everything that he's done. It's so that one day God will finally get his way. He hasn't gotten his way yet. And so the finish, the rationale, the consummation, the finality of all that God has ever done is complete redemption for nature, for this world. He's going to completely remake the world. It's going to be just the way He always wanted it, not polluted, not torn up, not scarred, not used up, but it's going to be perfect in every way, and people will be perfect in every way, fully redeemed, fully bought back fully restored, just the way he always wanted, completely restored. 
what he's always wanted is going to happen someday. One day it's going to happen. Now is our salvation nearer than when we first believed. And all of that began sometime in eternity past. We don't know how long ago. Long before the first Adam was created. Within himself, God, Father, Son, and Spirit in this perfect relationship that we call Trinity. They had everything perfect, perfect love, perfect harmony, perfect everything. And decided that the only way he could make it better was to share it. But to share it, there had to be an intelligent being. And to be an intelligent being, there had to be a world that could only work a certain way for them to live there and, and, and share in his love. That was his plan. But we got away, you see. In our own willingness to do things our own way and really, in effect, be our own God, we got in the way of His plan and we messed it up badly. And so Christ comes to set it all right, to pull back the curtain and say, look, here's what we always intended, and we want you to be in what we've got. That's what Jesus came for, to invite us into what God has in Himself. And so that means that everything that has ever taken place, every creation, every everything, your life, everything, is an explosion of His love. Now some of it has gotten blocked and ruined by the way we've behaved. But one day, one day, He gets His way. He gets His way. Think about this. Every good thing, go back to my barber. Every good thing, every joy you've ever experienced, every honest pleasure, every time you've had that sensation that God is so close that your breath catches, every sky that you've ever looked at far away from the city where the Sky is just splattered with a million stars. And they're so brilliant that you just go, oh. Every thrill that you've ever had, every feeling of accomplishment, every smile that has ever melted your heart, every kind word that makes you cry, all of those things are just little indicators of what we've got to look forward to. That's what we've got to look forward to, only better. I have a pastor friend. He was putting the finishing touches on his Sunday morning message. His little girl, his little daughter was small then. <clears throat> and his little daughter came in and she said, Daddy, can we play? And he said, I'm really something like, really sorry, sweetheart, but I'm right in the middle of finishing my sermon. And in about an hour or so, I can play. That's what he told her. She said, okay. She said, when you're finished, I will give you a great big hug. And she started for the door. But when she got to the door, she did a U-turn. And she came back, and she gave her dad a bone-breaking hug. 
And he teased her. And he said, you said you were going to give me a hug after I finished. And she said, I just wanted you to know what you've got to look forward to. All those little joys that we've ever known. That's just an indicator of what we've got to look forward to. Let's wake up to what time it is, to the choice we have to make, sleep, not sleep, but to that wonderful day when he gets his way and the joys that we have experienced up to this point will pale compared to what he's got in store for us. You've been listening to a slightly inspired message from Fairfax Assembly, a different kind of church in Bakersfield, California. Find out more at www.fairfaxassembly.com.